I'm going to open our service with prayer and ask you to bow with me and close your eyes as we commit this time to the Lord Father. We are so privileged to call you Father. And as we gather on this special Sunday, even though we're not together together, we are in spirit. We thank you that you are with us. We pray that you would be working in the lives. And I commit our leaders, our president, our vice president, the whole staff of people that are working on this coronavirus. I pray for our governor and others. And Lord, I pray that they would sense and know their need for you. I pray that they would turn to you in this time of need, not just out of duty, but out of sincere devotion and realization of our own frailty as humans. I pray that you'd give them wisdom and guidance and encouragement. I lift up our friends and family who are feeling ill or sick and maybe some who have this virus. I pray that you'd bring healing and strength to their bodies. I ask that you'd comfort and encourage those who've lost loved ones in this whole pandemic. I pray and ask that you would bring peace and encouragement to the lives of those who've lost their jobs or temporarily unemployed or maybe for a long time, those who are struggling financially, give them comfort, encouragement, and peace at this time. And Father, we commit our service to you, praying that you would be honored and you would be glorified, praying that in this time, people would truly see their need for a risen Savior who brings true hope and true help in these times. We pray and commit this service to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Yeah, in one of the most notorious criminal trials in the United States history, legendary football player O.J. Simpson was acquitted. That means found not guilty of murder. In spite of what many consider to be overwhelming evidence for a conviction, he was found not guilty. You see, in a court of law, it is the jury and it is the judge who weigh the evidence and then they respond accordingly. As we gather this morning, as those that the video said are those testifying to a risen Christ, we are serving in a sense as a jury, a jury presented with evidence, an evidence of an empty tomb and a claim that there is a risen Savior. And the question is, what will our verdict be? We're going to weigh the evidence, and our verdict will either be consistent with or in contradiction to that evidence that is provided. And this is probably the most important case presented on trial because I don't think it's too harsh to say that Christianity rises or falls on the basis of the resurrection. In fact, the resurrection is the central tenet of the Christian faith. So if there is no resurrection, there is really no Christianity. And so as we hear the facts in the case, we'll either be more convinced, the more convincing the facts are, the more confident we are in our conclusion. And so I would encourage you to sit back and listen as we go to the scriptures and hopefully present a case for the resurrection, but we have to be the jury. We weigh the facts and come to our conclusion corresponding to the facts presented. And I would just say that it seems to me that our verdict ultimately will not determine what's true. I just hope and pray that our verdict is consistent with the truth of the facts that are presented. And so this morning, I'm going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that I think lays out a case in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 15. There are three convincing lines of evidence that provide, I think, compelling 
proof for the resurrection, proof that confirms Jesus is indeed the Messiah, gives comfort to those who are trusting in this, and I think calls for those who may be doubting the reality of Christianity, particularly as it pertains to the resurrection, to embrace Christianity. And so I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. If you have your phone or your device or maybe on your computer or if you have your Bible, I'm in Matthew 28. I'm going to read the text and then we're going to unpack these three lines of evidence. I'm in Matthew 28, beginning with verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him, because, and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He's not here. For he is risen, just as he said, Come, see the place where he was lying, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to, the, to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they shall see me. Now, while they were on their way, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they assembled, had assembled with the elders and counseled together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money, and they did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Well, the first thing we see in the text is the activity of an angel or the appearance of an angel. So we have this activity of an angel that is presented in their two ways that he was active that I think support the reality of the resurrection. The first are his works, attesting to the resurrection of Jesus. In verses 2 through 4, we see that it was Sunday, the first day of the week, as it began to dawn on the first day of the week, which the first day of the week was Sunday, the morning of the crucifixion. Mary Magdalene, this is a woman from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons, and then Mary, the mother of James and, and Joseph, it says in Matthew 27, 56, came to look at the grave. Now, the women weren't directionally challenged. It wasn't that they needed their GPS to figure out where the grave was. Some would say they, they went to the wrong place. Well, we know from Matthew 27, and especially in verse 61, that they were there watching when he was buried. So it's not that they were confused about where it might be. But then the text says in verse 2, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. Now this was either before or coinciding with when the angel had appeared. And it was a sign of, of divine activity. In fact, it doesn't take too much investigation to go back into Matthew chapter 27 in verses 51 and 54. On the very day that Jesus was crucified, there was a severe earthquake. And 
the tearing of the veil and the opening of the tombs and, and people coming out and walking around after they had been buried. And so this is a sign of something miraculous, something divine, something special. I want to make clear that the, the angel didn't roll the stone away from the tomb so that Jesus could get out. He rolled the stone away from the tomb so that people could get in and see that he wasn't there. My niece had a, a pet snake that she kept in her room. And this pet snake on, on probably more than one occasion, but at least one occasion, got out of his aquarium. And so the entire family was searching frantically throughout the whole house. They would go into, into every room. They'd open the door, or then they'd go to the closets and open the doors to the closets. Now, they opened the doors not to let the snake out, but to see that he wasn't in there. And so the angel rolled the stone away, not so that Jesus could escape, but so that people coming could see that he wasn't in there. Now, notice the effect of the angel's arrival on these Roman guards in verses 3 and 4. And this appearance, his appearance was like lightning and his garment white as snow. And the angels shook for fear and they became like dead men. So they were terrified and they were petrified at this angelic appearance. And the white as snow and the lightning indicate a divine appearance which indicates purity and holiness. They were in the presence of something very divine, and it scared the bejeebers out of them, and so they were, they were frightened. Now, is that proof of a resurrection, just because an angel showed up? No, not in and of itself. But when you consider all of the evidence, and that's what we're doing this morning, is adding it together, there's obviously something supernatural that took place, and he can't ignore it. So we consider the fact that there is this, the works of the angel. Now we want to look at the words of the angel, which attest to the resurrection. Now the angel addressed the women, and he said, do not be afraid. Well, that's kind of an understatement. You can imagine that if these Roman soldiers were terrified, as I said, and petrified like dead people, we would expect that the women coming to the tomb and seeing an empty tomb and seeing an angel, they would be scared as well. And he, he told them, he said, don't be afraid. Words of comfort. And I think sometimes we, we miss the fact that Jesus had been crucified. The one that they had followed, these women had been supporters of his, that he died on the cross. And now their hopes seemingly dashed. And then they come and he's not there and they're confused and they're in chaos. And he says, don't worry. Don't be afraid. And then he says four things, each of them building on the other, which I seem to think provide really strong evidence for the resurrection. First, there's a clarification of Jesus' identity. And we see this, if you read with me at the end of verse 5, he says, don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. You're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He specifies a person. And I, I thought about this. I thought, you know, if my wife would say to me, Steve, I want you to know that, that Bob called. I would go, okay, Bob. So is that Blue Bob who goes on a mission trip to Haiti? Is it Bob Vaughn? Is it uh, Bob Short? Or maybe it's my good buddy, Bob Cosbo. I don't know. But the angel specifies this is Jesus. 
the angel spoke to them of the crucified Christ, the one who'd been crucified. They'd seen him laid in the tomb. He was dead last time they saw him. Then there's the proclamation that, the, that Christ has risen. The angel says, he's not here in verse 6, for he has risen just as he said. He has risen. Well, it's a simple statement of fact, or with the force of a fact. It's a simple statement with the force of a fact, but that in and of itself is not inconclusive evidence. I remember on one occasion sitting in my study, not, not here, it was in a previous pastorate, and there was a person who came to the door, and this person was a transient, and they said that they were traveling from Minneapolis to St. Louis. And, okay, simple statement with the force of a fact. But the puzzling thing to me was that they were 80 miles west of Interstate 80 going from Minneapolis to St. Louis, which was completely out of the way. It was a simple statement of fact, or a simple statement with the force of a fact, but it needed further corroboration. So this does too. Then thirdly, we see the assertion that Christ has risen. Okay but it's an assertion that he has risen in fulfillment of an earlier prediction. The text says he has risen from the dead just as he said. Okay, look for Jesus who's crucified. He is not here for he has risen, verse 6, just as he said. So he said he was going to rise from the dead. See, Christ repeatedly throughout his ministry said, I'm going to be crucified. But then on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. This is Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. You know, he says, just as the sign of, of Jonah was, just as he was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the son of man shall be three days and three nights in the earth. But I could take you and you could write it down if you want. But in Matthew 16, 21 and Matthew 17, verse 2. 9 and verse 22 and verse 23, Matthew 20, verse 9, Matthew 26, all these times. In fact, even the religious leaders knew that Jesus had said he would rise from the dead on the third day. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 63, we read, and they said, sir, we remember that when he was alive, that deceiver said, this is the religious leaders speaking to the, the political people now, after three days, I am to rise again. So they knew it. Now, it's not, you know, the assertion itself is not proof positive of a resurrection. But look, it's a bold and verifiable statement. He makes a, a statement that you could verify. I like what Wilbur Smith says, quoted in Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He says, but when he said that he himself would rise again from the dead the third day after he was crucified, he said something that only a fool would dare to say if he expected any longer the devotion of his disciples unless unless he was sure he was going to rise. No founder of any world religion known to men ever dared say a thing like that, except for Jesus. It was a bold statement, but you could verify it. I remember sitting in my study several years ago, and I received a phone call. And the phone call was from a gentleman who said he lived in our town. He said, uh, hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm, I'm pastor. Uh, I've met you about two or three weeks ago. I saw you in church. So he claimed to have been to our church and claimed to visit me after the church service. And he says, you know, I, I live in the town where you live. Uh, he mentioned the name of the town. He said, I traveled to Florida to see my family. And while I was there, I was on my way back and I'm in Georgia now. 
my car broke down while I was in Georgia. And so I'm asking if you would please wire me enough money to buy at least half of a bus ticket to get back to our small town. And I said, oh, so you're from here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, well, what, what street do you live on? I and mean, what's your address? And so he gave me the address. Now, the address was of some, I can't remember exactly the name of the street, but it was some very common street, you know, like Pennsylvania Avenue, or it was something like Madison Street or something like that, or maybe it was one of the states, Arizona or something. Well, in our small town, look, folks, the north-south streets are, are numbered 1st Street, 2nd Street, 3rd Street, 4th Street, okay? And all of the east-west streets are some sort of vegetation. It's either a flower or it's grape or it's vine. So I knew this guy was blowing smoke, okay? It could be verified. Jesus, the angel said, would rise from the dead just as he said. It could be verified. To say that Jesus has risen from the dead still maybe leaves a question in your mind. So I come to the fourth statement of the angel, an invitation to investigate and to verify all the other statements. Well, did he really rise from the dead? The angel says at the end of verse 6, come see the place where he was lying. Okay, come and see it. The tomb where Jesus had been buried was secured by the Roman soldiers, sealed with the Roman seal, and secured by the guards. It was empty. And the joy of every Christian is that it is still empty. It was empty then. It is empty now. Now, why is it empty? An empty tomb is also not conclusive evidence of a resurrection. But what he said next makes possible verification of the angel's explanation. So the angel said he has risen from the dead. That's why he's not here. And so then Jesus gives another invitation, actually an instruction. In verse 7, he says, And go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. And behold, I've told you. So, you don't think that Jesus is risen from the dead? Here's the deal. He's not in the tomb. He's going to be in Galilee. So go there and you will see him. Jesus told the disciples to go there. After his resurrection, he had told them that before in Matthew 26. I remember Marla and I had just returned in 2011 from an overseas mission trip, and we drove home, and we got home the very night that a series of severe tornadoes went through northwest Iowa. And one of the stories coming out of the tornadoes was that there was a combine, these huge harvesting machines that go through the fields and harvest the, the crops, had been out in a field, and it had been blown by the tornado so much so, and, and for so many yards or feet down the, the path of this, or down this field, that it was like a, a ball of sheet metal. There was another story about a house that had been lifted off its foundation, and a pickup truck picked up and sat down in the basement. Now, those are extraordinary claims, but there are claims that you could go and see, did this really happen? Where is this combine? Where is this pickup truck sitting in the basement of a house with the roof blown off. Well, Jesus was going into Galilee, the angel said. You can go there and you can find him. Now, these are verifiable claims. Look at chapter 28, verse 16, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated, and when they saw him, they worshiped. 
But some were doubting. And Jesus came up and spoke to them. So they saw him and he spoke to them. There is this evidence from the activity of the angel. Then the text moves to the appearance of Jesus as a secondary line of evidence compelling us to believe in the resurrection. Verses 8 and 9. And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Understandable. <laughs> they're afraid, but that they're excited. Well, he's not here. We believe that he's risen from the dead. We haven't confirmed that yet, but we're still afraid. And then verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Wow. The woman personally encountered the risen Christ. And it was Jesus who met them, not a figment of their imagination. Notice the text says that they saw him. Okay. And then the text says that they heard Jesus. He greeted them. And then they touched him, touched his feet, took hold of his feet, and they worshiped him. Each action building on the next provides conclusive evidence, I think, that this was indeed Jesus, that he wasn't in the grave, but that he had risen from the dead. They touched him, and, and, and they recognized him, and they worshipped him, which only God could be worshipped. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, the Magi came and fell at Jesus' feet. You see the leper healed, and Matthew chapter 8 comes and worships at Jesus' feet. I saw somebody the other day, and I actually had a conversation with this person. But it wasn't really that person. Because it was in a dream. I didn't touch him. I didn't really see him. And I didn't really talk to him. But I thought I did. What we have here is not a dream. They saw. They heard. They touched. They worshipped the risen Christ. Only two witnesses, according to the Old Testament, are needed to confirm a matter. Well, these two women were just the first of many. A multitude of people who witnessed Jesus after he rose from the dead, confirming beyond doubt what believers say, that we worship a risen Savior. I want you to look with me, if you will, on the screen at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6. Paul speaking, for I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And what adds credibility to the testimony of these witnesses is that most of them, many of them, suffered martyrdom and persecution because they refused to deny their claim that Jesus has risen from the dead. Had the resurrection been a hoax? Uh, It'd be pretty ludicrous to assume that that many people would actually go to their grave for claiming or suffer persecution for claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. Why would you do that? They would all have to be insane if they said that they saw him, but they didn't see him, but yet they're willing to die or be persecuted because they were unwilling to recant that they had seen him. No, it adds credibility. And then the angel repeats or that Jesus repeats what the angel had said in verse 10. He says to the women, verse 10, do not be afraid. In these chaotic, in these confusing times that they were in and that we're in, Jesus utters these assuring words. 
don't be afraid. Go take word to my brethren. Those who were the deserters now are welcomed back as his disciples as he shows his love and compassion and sensitivity to them because after the resurrection, they must have been totally forlorn, totally confused, absolutely destitute, disillusioned, uncertain of what the future held. (laughs) Not too dissimilar to what many people feel today, a little bit disoriented and discouraged and frustrated, disappointed, some depressed. And he brings a word of encouragement. Hey, don't worry, I haven't abandoned you. Go to Galilee. He tells them the same thing that the angel had told the women. Go tell these disciples to go to Galilee, and I will appear to you. Here he will. And there's one final proof in the text that removes, I think, all doubt about the validity, the veracity, the truthfulness of the resurrection. We have the activity of the angels. We have the appearance of Jesus, and we have the attempted cover-up. And the cover-up provides at least two indications of the credibility of the resurrection. Beginning in verse 11, we have, first of all, that the facts are laid out for us. They're revealed. We see that in verse 11 now, while they were on their way, that is, the women on their way to the disciples, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. Now, folks, these are the guards that were put in place to secure the tomb so that nobody would steal the body. If the body, which was stolen, if it was stolen, and if they had fallen asleep, if they had proven derelict in their responsibilities, they would have been executed summarily. They would have been just executed for their failure of their responsibility. No. Something undeniably extraordinary had taken place. They recorded all that had happened. What had happened? (laughs) Well, there'd been an earthquake. Then there'd been this angel that came. Bright white lights. They fell down on their face like dead men, and the tomb was empty. They told the religious leaders all that had taken place. Something undeniably extraordinary had taken place, and it had resulted in circumstances that they didn't want to have to live with, which would have proven them derelict and their responsibilities and resulted in their death. And so they came asking for help. So now, the facts that had been revealed are now going to be concealed. In verses 12 through 15, the religious leaders, if you'll remember in the story of Jesus' whole life, the religious leaders had bribed Judas. to call into question the righteousness of Jesus. Now they bribe the guards to call into question the resurrection of Jesus. They were in trouble. They didn't know what to do. And so they came up with this fabricated story. So big money and a big story to cover up the truth and the reality that Jesus had risen from the dead. And the absurdity of the story shows the desperation of these religious leaders, when you think about it. Again, first of all, the soldiers were supposed to admit uh, that they had fallen asleep, which is an executable offense. And by the way, while we were sleeping, we didn't hear this earthquake. And we didn't hear the stone being rolled away so big that it took a bunch of people to put the stone in place. And then Add to that that while we were sleeping, we we noticed that it was Jesus' disciples who took away the body of Jesus while we were sleeping. They had completely and utterly failed in their responsibility. 
I mean, you can read it in Matthew chapter 27, verse 64, what they were supposed to do. They're supposed to guard. Make it as secure as you can. That was the order given to them. Then in verse 14, uh, the kicker is, and, and if the religious leaders tell them, and if this should come to the governor's ear, we will win him over for you and keep you out of trouble. Okay. They're going to rely on the religious leaders to keep them from getting into trouble for their lie about what happened. Why do you need to get out of jail free card if you're telling the truth? You don't. They covered the truth. That their fabricated story was widely known for a long time only strengthens the evidence for the resurrection. I mean, think about it. The fabricated facts coming out of China with regard to the coronavirus only convinces us further that they were derelict in their responsibilities to tell the truth and that they're still not telling the truth. Why? Because the story is known and everybody knows it's not true. The story that the guards were told to tell by the religious leaders is not true. It's a cover-up. The proof of the resurrection is compelling. I like what Lord Lindhart, Lindhart said, I know pretty well what evidence is. And I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never been broken down yet. I got that from Josh's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. In the resurrection, a few things happened. Here's kind of the distilling out, the playing out of what the implications of that are for us. First of all, our Lord certified His credibility. You think about it, he says, I'm going to rise again the third day. After being crucified, I'm going to rise again the third day. The one who promised, and he made that promise several times, that he would rise again. The one who promised it, proved it. He came through on his promise. And the implication for us is, if the resurrection is true, if what Jesus said about the resurrection is true, then why wouldn't we believe all the other things that Jesus told us? If he did the most difficult thing, and that was true. Then anything else that he tells us, we should have confidence that it's true as well. Secondly, and just, I mean, he, he, he is Lord. And that's the, the end of that one. He, he's not a liar. He's not crazy. Secondly, our Lord confirmed his identity. Those of us who've been part of our study of the book of Matthew, remember, maybe, or I'll refresh our memories back in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1, verse 1, Matthew 1, verse 21, Matthew 1, verse 23, we see that Jesus is the Son of David, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That's, he's designated as the Son of God, the descendant of David, and the Savior of the world. That's his designation. Well, in Matthew 28, verse 6, it says, He's not here. He has risen just as He said. So He was designated one thing back in Matthew chapter one and throughout the text, and then now in virtue of by virtue of the resurrection, he is declared to be the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And so you know that I'm not blowing smoke. I want you to see Romans chapter one, verses three and four, and we'll, we'll read those <clears throat> together. It says that uh, Jesus is declared to be the uh, Son of God, the Son of Man, by virtue of his birth, and then in verse 4 it says he's declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. So I guess you can't see it, but you can look it up. 
and you can verify whether what I'm saying is true. But he was declared to be the Son of God through the resurrection of the dead. So there we have it. The resurrection validates Jesus as our Savior and as our King. Yes, descendant of David according to the flesh. He's declared the Son of God by virtue of the resurrection and our Savior. That's Him. Finally, uh, we want to look at our Lord, the fact that He conquered His enemy and ours. He conquered His enemy and ours. Without the resurrection, what does Jesus' life become? A hoax. It ends in defeat. But He has risen from the dead, as the angel says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 7. When Christ rose from the dead, He defeated death. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 15, 26, he says that the last enemy that is defeated is death. When Jesus rose, he defeated death. He rose victorious. Whether you're a Chiefs fan or not, the fact remains that the Chiefs were victorious in the Super Bowl in 2020. They won. Okay, When Jesus rose from the dead, He won. He conquered sin and death. The, the reason we die is because of our sin. And when Jesus rose from the dead, He conquered not only death, but the power which leads to our death, which is sin. He conquered it. The hope of the resurrection day. The hope of this day. The hope of every Sunday. The hope of every day for those who trust in Christ is that we too can share in Christ's victory over sin and over death. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, the Apostle Paul has something to say to us about our victory over sin and death. I'm just going to turn there. I'm just going to read it. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die also, in Christ all will be made alive. In Christ all will be made alive. Not everyone will be made alive, but those who are in Christ will be made alive because of Christ's rising from the dead. How is it that we're made alive in Christ? Well, first of all, we have to recognize that we're not alive in Christ, that we have sinned and messed up. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray, each one has turned to his own way. You see, we're naturally born in rebellion against God, and then we make choices every day in rebellion against God, and the wage or the payment for that rebellion is eternal separation from God. Death, the wage of sin is death, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. But Christ died in our place. Isaiah 53 tells us that he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening, the punishment for our well-being fell upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. So when he died on the cross, he paid the debt of sin that we deserve to pay. And he died. He did. He paid it for us. Christ died so that we might live. But Christ's death alone, and this is the interesting fact that Christ's death alone didn't cleanse us from sin. Romans chapter 4, verse 25, uh, says that He was delivered over because of our transgression. He was raised again because of or in order to bring about our justification. We need the death of Christ to pay the debt for our sins, the resurrection of Christ to prove His victory over sin and death so that we are declared righteous before a holy God. And Paul goes on to make that case in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 16 and 17 and verse 20. For if the dead are not raised, 
Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. See, you're still in your sins, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And Christ has been raised. The resurrection proves that the cross saves all who believe from sin because Jesus conquered death and he proved his victory over it. And finally, not only do we need to understand we're walking away from God and that we deserve death and that Christ died for us, but we must personally trust in Christ's sacrifice as the payment we deserve and surrender our life to Him. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead, we'll be saved. For with the heart we believe, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth we confess, resulting in salvation. It takes active trust. Several years ago, my wife and I were in a place where we were able to go scuba diving. Now, I don't know if you know what scuba diving is. You put a mask on and some tanks on, and you're supposed to trust that if you breathe through this tube in your mouth, that you go clear down under the water, you're not going to drown. Well, it takes faith. You have to trust that the tank's going to work, there's oxygen in the tank, that you're going to breathe and you're not going to die by sucking in a bunch of seawater. In the same way, we must personally put our faith or our trust. It's not something I can do for you, not something somebody else can do for you. We must personally trust that Jesus died and paid the debt that we owe. And the marvelous thing is that through faith, we're born again, where we become new creatures in Christ Jesus. And when we become new creatures in Christ Jesus, Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and following. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again, now get this, to a living hope. And we hear a lot of talk about having hope today. The only living hope we have is through the person and work of Jesus who conquered sin and death so that we can have confidence that our hope is in something that's permanent, that's lasting, that's real. Not just some pie-in-the-sky trivial thoughts or that if we just work at it hard enough or we just think at it long enough, we'll be in good shape. No, this is what God has promised us, that through His resurrection, Jesus provides redemption which means the price to release us from the penalty of sin. He provides for us the promise of a future resurrection that those of us who have been united with Him in His death, we shall also be in, with Him in the likeness of His resurrection. We will be united with Him. We'll be raised together with Him in life. And then finally, the eternal rewards that begin now. The eternal life is not something that's tacked on at the end. It's something that begins the moment we trust Christ. And the rewards that he promises that Peter goes on to promise to an inheritance that's incorruptible, that's undefiled, that fades not away, that's reserved in heaven for you. There's some things we enjoy now. We have power over sin. Its power is no longer binding us if we're trusting in Christ. We have peace with God. We're no longer at enmity with God. We have purpose in our life. We can live a life of purpose and meaning in spite of all the chaos that's around us, in spite of a coronavirus, in spite of death and disease and destruction and financial ruin. We can live with purpose because this is not our home. And while we're here, we want to make it the best we can, but we're looking for heaven. It's a blessed thing. So I ask you this morning, what's your verdict? You're going to resist or reject the evidence 
that's provided here and in other places? Maybe that's true. Maybe you do. And if you do, I have a question for you. What evidence, what additional evidence, if it was supplied, would convince you of the reality of the resurrection and the truthfulness of Christianity? Is there any? Or could there be? And if there's an openness of a possibility to that, I just invite you to go to our website and find our email and email me or any one of our elders, and we'd love to engage in a conversation about that. Maybe you're here this morning, you've listened to this, and you've been rejecting the truth of Christianity or or Christ for a long time, and now you say, well, I don't know, maybe there's some things I need to look at and go closer. I'd invite you to investigate it. Again, you can get a hold of us, contact us. We can give you resources that will help you with that. Or maybe you're just ready to say, okay, I understand. I accept it now. I believe that Jesus did indeed die on the cross and that he did in fact rise from the dead and that his death paid the debt that I deserve to pay and that his resurrection proved he had victory over sin and death and I want to put my trust or my faith in Christ. And his death on the cross is the payment for my sin and his resurrection as the promise and the down payment that I will be with him in glory one day. And that I can have purpose and peace and power over sin now. Yeah, great. All you need to do is just tell God that. And whatever words you see appropriate, like I, I messed up, Lord, I'm sorry. I know that I'm walking away from you, but right now I want to trust what Jesus did. I don't want to turn from my own selfishness and sinfulness, and I want to trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I invite you to be my Lord and Master right now. Give me wisdom and direction in my life. And if you pray that prayer, I really want you to email me or email one of our elders, and we'll try to get some information to help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you're a believer this morning, and you hear the evidence for the resurrection, it should bring rejoicing in our heart, comfort, that God is really in control, that there is hope and help right now. We have been born again to a living hope. Not something that is vapid and fleeting, but something that's permanent and real. We have real victory over sin. Real victory over death. Real victory over hell. And real hope now for a future that awaits us. You know, this morning as we, as we close our service and we break this bread and drink this cup, the symbols of Jesus' sacrifice, what do they remind us of? They remind us of the price that was paid to purchase our pardon, which proved effective and proves effective for all who believe and who are in union with Christ by faith because of the resurrection. What we break this bread and drink this cup would be empty apart from the resurrection. But now it's a symbol of His body broken, His blood shed that provided for our salvation that proves effective because for those who believe because of the resurrection, He died to satisfy the wrath of God against our sin and He rose to secure our new life in Him. I invite you to pray with me as we prepare to take these elements and then we'll celebrate the Lord's table together. Father, I thank You for the resurrection. Lord, I thank you for the salvation you provided through the sacrifice of your Son, our Lord Jesus. His body was broken. His blood was shed to pay the debt that we deserve to pay so that if we would trust, turn from our sins and trust you, that we would have new life in Christ, eternal life, purpose and peace and power to live victorious over sin now in increasing measure until we meet you in glory. 
I pray that each of us would take this bread and drink this cup in remembrance of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have your bread, I just invite you to take your bread and uh, I'll say that, you know, and Jesus, which on the, the last Passover that he celebrated, he, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And you may eat the bread. text tells us that in the same way after supper he took the the cup and when he had given thanks he said this is a new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me you may drink the cup just wanted to say thank you for joining us this morning as we worship the Lord together on Resurrection Sunday. I'm just going to close our time in prayer and wish you a very blessed Resurrection Day. I hope that you're able to enjoy it with your friends, your family, as best you can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we serve a risen Savior, a Savior who's seated right now at the right hand of the Father on high, and we anticipate the waiting, wait for his return, and the time in which we'll be caught up in the air and join him glory. I pray for all who've gathered this morning would worship you in spirit and in truth, give you praise and adoration and thanksgiving for who you are, what you've done. By your grace, Lord, you have a strength and courage to proclaim this message of hope to a lost and dying world. And I pray that you give us courage to live out more fully and consistently all of the implications and the applications of the truth. I pray that you would work to transform us and work to conform us to the image of Christ in whose precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you and have a blessed day.